0: Hop on a plane, train or automobile and be whisked off to somewhere new and exciting. And, until recently, many of us never considered that we would be at risk of bringing a pandemic home with us as a souvenir. This week, we're going to look at what travel will be like in the future with Ronald St. John. We'll venture into the effectiveness of border closings and answer your questions about how to travel safely. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and we're going to take a trip into the world of science. No passport required. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Let's face it, before March of 2020, the world was really a hopping place. We had freedom of movement, we could go wherever we wanted, when we wanted as well. And then all that changed with COVID-19. We got grounded, our borders shut down, and many of us were left wondering how or when we'll be able to take off and see the world again. Well, I'm happy to say that Ronald St. John is with us to answer that question and many more. He was the Director General of the Centre for Emergency Preparedness and Response at the Public Agency of Canada. He helped develop the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, which helps health professionals rapidly detect, identify, assess, prevent, and mitigate threats to human health. He's also one of the few people in the world who has been tasked with figuring out how to keep a pandemic pathogen from spreading across borders and into our domestic lives. Tell us about your journey into the world of traveling infections and the launch of the Global Public Health Intelligence Network.
1: Well, the uh, first part of my my interest in, in travel is it's painfully obvious, I think, that human beings are amazing in their ability to move rapidly and at the same time carry germs from one part of the world to the other unknowingly but with great speed i'm in canada and i know that for example um you might be an engineer somewhere in the jungles of papua new guinea and be exposed to uh, an unusual virus or bacteria you're ready to come home and you'll be back in canada within 24 hours which is probably faster than the incubation period of that germ and then you go on to your small town and you become uh, the incubation period runs its course you get sick and that doctor doesn't know what you have because he's not used to that virus, and it can spread. So the idea of a traveler as a, as a vector, if you will, for disease is what interests me. Uh, I, my interest is infectious diseases. GFN, the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, this goes back some years uh, when we were uh, not particularly concerned about getting an early warning Uh, about what was going on in the world. And um, I'll provide an anecdote here, if that's all right. It was around 98. We were, um, I was in my office, I had a television that I used to keep on CNN. And it showed people fleeing the city of Surat in India, a long way from uh, from Ottawa. They were fleeing on foot, on carts, on on buses and trucks, because it was rumored that there was an outbreak of pneumonic plague in the city. Uh, pneumonia plague. That's the worst kind of plague you can possibly have because if without treatment, uh, you could be dead in 24 hours. And that seemed like a long way away, uh, no big problem. Within an hour, I got a telephone call from Pearson Airport, our biggest airport in Canada. The director of the airport, said that there was an Air India flight, a big 747 that was coming from India. And it was past the halfway point where it can't turn around. It has to continue. And it was going to land at Pearson. And if it did, 30,000 employees at Pearson who have been watching CNN were going to go home. And we would have no one at the airport, which would have been a disaster, of course. I was able to take a, get a colleague who's a quarantine officer for Canada. I said, please get to get to Pearson before the air in your flight does get people calmed down. There's not going to be any plague on a on a plane. And it's not a real public health concern. And he did, he got there in time and he did calm things down. And, uh, everything worked out in the end. At that point, we said, gee, that took us by surprise. Something far away was here within a couple hours. So what kind of outbreaks of disease were going on all over the world? And we thought um, that maybe this new thing called the internet uh, might be able to to give us some information. People won't believe me when I say that at that time, uh, just a little over 20 years ago, uh, the fastest search engine available would take one whole month to make one pass of the internet. Now you turn on Google and you get 3 million replies in half a second. That wasn't going to give us rapid response, or rapid information. That's when we stumbled on news- newspaper wires. Uh, newspapers like to write about outbreaks locally. There are uh, institutions or agencies like Agence France-Presse, API, uh, Reuters, and others that have newswire feeds. And we thought, maybe we can capture information from those newswire feeds. We did. And that led to the creation of something called the Global Public Health Intelligence Network that every day would get newswire information from around the world as to what kinds of outbreaks of disease were going on. And then we could look at that. And we could take a look and say, uh, well, the cholera outbreak in, let's say, Angola, that's not going to be a big problem here, but we should keep our eye on Japanese encephalitis virus. And that, that led to uh, GFIN, as we call it, uh, which is still operating today and is still providing information to subscribers, which include the World Health Organization, the CDC in Atlanta, and other government uh, units here in Canada and elsewhere in the world. But it's predominantly for governments.
0: For me, I very much like GFIN because it does give you that early warning. But The problem about giving an early warning to the public, as opposed to, say, governments and scientists, is that the minute that you hear about one of these potential pandemic viruses showing up in a localized environment, the first thing they do is they look for an international airport, and then immediately after that, they start calling for closing borders to international travel from that site. This is not necessarily the first thing governments think about when it comes to these pandemic viruses.
1: It's really rare that you actually close the border. It's it's not it's not always the most effective.
0: And the thing is, when it comes to any kind of microbial infection, all it takes is one. We've actually seen this not just with COVID, but with other infections in the past, such as uh, Ebola. When it came to America, we saw what happened there. Perhaps the reason we don't close the borders is simply because we're dealing with something where You know, the the index case, the the N of one, can literally spark that entire outbreak in in one's own backyard.
1: Yeah, it's incomplete. It's not a magical tool that automatically puts the disease somewhere else. Uh, You point out very correctly, all it takes is one person. In fact, every outbreak starts with one person who spreads it to somebody else and then to somebody else and so on. So it's an incomplete tool.
0: Is there a condition where we will be able to get back to traveling without having to worry so much about COVID or, or any pandemic virus, for that matter?
1: Um Probably not, actually. I think we're, we're facing, as many, many people have said, I think we're facing a new reality. We will have to learn how to travel with this virus, if you will. Not, I don't mean that in terms of being infected by it, but I mean by, by knowing that it's, it could be there and that uh, certain measures will have to be in place to try to reduce the risk. It never takes the risk to zero. But to reduce that risk and keep the keep the virus at bay as long as much as possible.
0: Do you think that we will ever get to a point where we start seeing loosening of the restrictions uh, for safety, or do you think that this really is, as you just said, sort of a new normal that's just going to stick with us for as long as we can think of? I just think it's a new normal. What about traveling nationally? We're we're slowly moving into a world where we're. Taking that almost measles approach to COVID, where we're going to look at different regions and seeing if there are hot flare ups happening there, and then we sort of shut that area down. Do you think that we're going to start seeing the same type of restrictions just with national travel from, say, one province to another, or even from one city to another?
1: Yeah, as you point out, the disease like COVID, a disease like COVID, is not evenly distributed in the population. There are, I mean, it's obviously going to be um, more widespread where people are more concentrated, like in our big cities, um, our nursing homes, for example. But uh, in very rural communities of 3,000, 4,000 people, it's not going to be as widespread. Um, So when it comes to traveling between uh, our provinces or nationally, I think we're going to be faced with uh, some areas that are going to be marginally don't go there for a, a little while because I think we'll have flare-ups. Just let me say, I, I think of this COVID, I like to think of it as, as one of the big forest fires like we have in Canada from time to time. And uh, we work hard and we put it down. Uh, we get it down to some reasonable level. The fire is still smoking. And over in, a, in one side or another side, there's a flare-up. And uh, this would be an outbreak of the virus. Uh, maybe another nursing home or someplace, a hospital or something, there'll be a flare up. We have to go put that outbreak out. Then we have to deal with another outbreak. So these are going to go on for some time, I believe, until maybe we get an effective vaccine. If we get an effective vaccine, that'll be more de- give us a more definitive tool for controlling the virus. But until that time, when we travel, we'll have to be cognizant of where we're going and taking perca- more precautions in some areas than other areas. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if
0: they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. Over the years, other hubs, such as trains, buses, and ferries, have adopted similar practices. The last thing anyone wants to think about are the infectious disease risks that come with travel. But that has changed dramatically. So, what will travel look like going forward? Take, for example, barrier protection. We all know wearing a mask or a scarf may be useful. But is it going to protect us 100%? Probably not. Not to mention, it's not something you want to be doing for hours or even days on end. Ronald St. John has gone through all the risks and is going to share some of them with us. He's also going to take us through some of the measures that will help us to take off and see the world again. We all hear about that person that's going to be on a plane Having an infection, even if it's in the incubation period, so they're not showing symptoms. But what is the likelihood that a person who doesn't have it is going to get infected by somebody else on a plane? And if so, how do we reduce that
1: risk? We do know from other viruses um, and bacteria that the people most at risk are usually in one or two rows from the person that's sitting there. But this is a new virus. This is this is a never seen before virus, so it's very hard to say that it's going to behave like viruses we know about. And so I don't know of any data yet that says on the plane, uh, you know, it's two rows or four rows of the whole plane that's at risk of being infected. Just don't know. However, we do know that a person ca- who is infected can come off the plane. And can infect people. I mean, it's it's clear that, uh, for example, when people started screening for China, for example, began screening intensely. People, people who are arriving, uh, even today, they find infected people arriving.
0: And, and I want to ask you a little bit about that because, having been to East Asia, I, I know that you're always under surveillance. Usually, it's passive. Uh, they've got the remote temperature sensors. Uh, They have the surveys with the questions about your travel history, but it's done in such a way that it's not really overt. But by the same respect, I keep hearing people saying that these measures are completely ineffective because they're not going to catch somebody. I'm wondering if... This is the type of measure that we need to see more of, or do we need to see a different kind of measure, or do we need to be more explicit in the way that we approach passengers coming off of planes, essentially saying, look, we are looking for this virus, or any virus for that matter, to make sure that our population stays safe?
1: Well, screening, screening at the airport is, again, one of those incomplete tools that we have. Uh, for example, if we want to detect people that have fevers uh, and they're infected with something, are we going to are we going to detect them if they take two Tylenol or anti-fever medications a couple hours before they get on the plane so <laughs> yeah, they won't have a fever we're not going to detect that person if you want the most complete you would take every single person off the plane and you would put them in a quarantine for anywhere from 14 to 21 days is that practical when you have 2 billion, that's with a B, 2 billion passenger trips, uh, you can't yeah. put those people in 14 to 21. You don't have any place to put all that, that many people. Yeah. So we have an incomplete tool.
0: Do you think then we could use a tool such as uh, what we saw with GTHIN to be able to identify potential risks when you are going to different countries so that you're aware of what you may be bringing back home?
1: Yeah, in other words, give passengers, uh, give travelers alerts.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, I think I think we can do that. And we can provide them with things to watch out for, for their safety and their security uh, when they travel and their health. And we can give them advice if they're overseas and something is happening that they need to know about. And that's where Sitata came in.
0: Let's get into Sitata, because when it comes to infection surveillance from traveling in Canada. You are the person who essentially started this. And so I'm wondering, when now that you've retired from uh, your public service, and thank you for your service, where does Satata take over from where GFIN leaves off?
1: Well, as I mentioned before, GFIN was predominantly uh, a government tool and it was intended to advise government agencies and uh, interested in organizations like the World Health Organization and so forth. It was not designed to provide advice for travelers. When I retired, I thought, gee, we should be able to do something like GFAN, but we should be able to provide it to a traveler. Um, And we should be able to tell a traveler uh, wherever they're going, uh, what kinds of diseases to watch out for, uh, what kind of precautions to take, and then also Gee, well, maybe we should go beyond health and we should talk about security because there are security issues in various parts of the world, not only petty crime, but sometimes uh, insurgencies and terrorist threats and so forth. So we decided to uh, start a uh, internet-based uh, company uh, with an app to, uh, to provide travelers with just this kind of information. If you subscribe to Sitata, S-I-T-A-T-A, you can, um, you register your trip, uh, you tell us uh, when, uh, you tell us what your itinerary is. Anytime something happens where you are, you will get uh, within 24 hours an alert, with 24 seven, an alert that there's a dengue fever outbreak, uh, or a bomb just went off in the supermarket in the market down downtown. Uh, plus, advice, advice on what to do to protect yourself further.
0: I have to tell you, I probably could have used that a number of years ago. Uh, I went into the Amazon jungle, and I was deathly afraid of malaria, but I had no idea that there was Campylobacter. So I ended up getting sick just for the wrong reasons.
1: <laughs> right, right,
0: and and that brings up a point is. We may be focused on COVID as a pandemic virus, but there are a number of different types of pathogens circulating around. We really need to be aware not just of you know one coronavirus, uh, but in fact, anything that happens to be out there that potentially could be a pathogen. And while there's 1,500 of them, they are regionally scattered around. And so it's good to have that information at hand.
1: One of the most common one of the most common problems for any traveler is really foodborne or waterborne illness. Uh, this is this is the classic traveler's diarrhea that you get, and it's ubiquitous in so many places around the world. but you don't have to get it. Uh, if you know how to take precautions for your food and your water, uh, you can do quite well and not have to spend two or three days of your uh, vacation time or your business trip um, absolutely uncomfortable with a food or waterborne illness.
0: Well, that's it for this part of the discussion. You know what to do next. Send me your questions on Twitter at JATetro by email to thegermguy at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at speakpipe.com slash sass. That's S-A-S-S. In the meantime, for Curious Cast, This is the Super Awesome Science Show. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Rod St. John. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. Stay safe. And as always, make sure to show him some sass.